My name is Josh Peck, host of Peck Report on Daily Renegade. I used to suffer with chronic pain from a degenerative bone disease. I was hopelessly addicted to opioids without any end in sight. But then I discovered Kratom and CBD. I am no longer on prescription drugs and I have more energy and pain relief than ever before. Kratom and CBD have given me my life back without draining my bank account. If you too would like some minor to major pain relief, Kratom and CBD might be for you. Either click on the links in the description below this video or go to dailyrenegade.com on the top left banner or right side ad and check out Tropic Health Kratom and CBD. Use promo code HEALTH20 for 20% off your order and get your life back today. Hey everybody, Josh Peck here. Welcome to Peck Report. So today we originally had planned uh, an interview with Dr. Michael Heiser. Don't worry, we still do have that interview. Today you're going to get to see Dr. Michael Heiser talk about his new book, Demons, only I'm not conducting the interview. So uh, tragedy has struck our family yet again. We just suffered a miscarriage. This would be our second miscarriage. Um, this would have been our sixth child. And the day before we found out we were going to have a miss that we were Christina was miscarrying, um, the day before that, or the day after that would have been the interview. Uh, my apologies, I'm a little little frazzled today. But um, I called up my good friend Drew Graffia, radical Christian, you guys should be familiar with him if you're a member at Daily Renegade, uh, and he did the interview for me. So a big thank you to Drew. Uh, so the miscarriage, we found out we were probably about five or six weeks along. Um, that that was what happened with the the first miscarriage too. This this was years ago. Uh, the first one. This was uh, shortly after we were married, about a year after we were married or so. Um, so anyway, please keep me and especially Christina and our family in prayer. Um, she took it hard. I took it hard. It, it was it was just not a very good time. So uh, big thank you to Drew for doing this interview. Uh, so without further ado, here is Dr. Michael Heiser on his book, Demons. All right, Dr. Heiser, thank you for being with us today. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for agreeing to the interview, and I'm very excited to get into your new book, Demons. So I'm sure everybody who's familiar with your work, you kind of laid the, a lot of the groundwork for people to grasp these contexts and concepts that mm -hmm. are normally reserved for academia. And now us laymen get to be be involved in the the mysteries of the kingdom. So it's exciting. And um, so your book, Demons, that, that's some territory that has a lot of confusion and misconceptions. I would say more than most. Yeah. Yeah, so would I. Because <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing I wanted to get into is what is a demon? What's the 
Just lay that out there for yeah, us. The, 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 the trimmed down answer to that would be a demon is a spiritual being, a member of the spiritual world, that is in an adversarial or hostile or rebellious relationship to God. That doesn't describe origin, you know, the origin of, of what we would call demons. And I should we should sort of initiate the audience right away here. The, the, the book's title is Demons, and then the subtitle is Deliberate. It's actually important. What the Bible really says about the powers of darkness. Now, the wording is intentional there because... Not all powers of darkness are demons. But again, that's typically the way we're taught. But if we're going to use demon terminology, which, you know, is is generally appropriate, then that's what they are. A, a spiritual being that is in a, a hostile relationship, adversarial, you know, rebellious relationship to God. They're not on God's payroll, okay? But they're still members of the spiritual world. So when we when we look at you know examples of demons in the Bible, you have tons in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at the Old Testament, there's tons of angel stuff there. But when you look for demons, it seems like almost like it's cryptic or hidden. Is is that deliberate? Where, where do demons go? <laughs> yeah, did they just flick on when de- when Jesus got there? This this is actually uh, I think it it's kind of an obvious question, and and I think it has some importance too. Because you know, it, it's a good entry point for asking a couple of questions. You know, one is, you know, you look at that and you think, well, like, where are the evil spirits? And and because we're used to thinking of the powers of darkness with the word demon, it's like, where are they? If we wouldn't be so used to that, we would know where they're at. Okay, so that's one thing. Uh, and just to unpack that for people who might be new to my content, and, and you're correct, you know, as, as you as we started here, that I I laid the framework for this in the book uh, The Unseen Realm, and then this is sort of an expansion and a drill down into the the powers of darkness. But I, I like to get into the subject this way: if you ask the average Christian, why is the world such a mess? You know, why do we have all this evil and you know? supernatural evil and human evil, you know, and of course there's a relationship between the two, but why is the world such a mess? You typically get an answer like, oh, it's the fall. You know, Adam and Eve, the garden, fall, all that sort of stuff, the serpent. If you ask the same question to a literate Israelite, you know, somebody who had a Bible, and a second temple period, it's an intertestamental period Jew, that is not the answer you would get. Okay, and the Second Temple period, it's, it's important to realize, includes the New Testament era, the first century. So it's roughly 400 B.C. to 100 A.D. in round numbers. The answer you would get is, well, there's actually three reasons why the world is such a chaotic mess. You know, it started with, you know, what happened in Eden. But then we had an, another situation where we had a, a, a supernatural rebellion. We had, we had a rebellion before. It was just one dude, okay? We had... The incident, and then had a situation at Babel where God essentially divorces Himself from humanity as a punishment, as a judgment, 
and he assigns the nations to other sons of God, you know, other members of the heavenly host, the spiritual world, who are who are less than him, but they become sort of placeholders, and they're supposed to rule the nations justly according to God's character. Because God is still interested in the nations, because right after he divorces them, he makes a covenant with Abraham to start this thing we call Israel. And in that covenant with Abraham, he, he more or less says, hey, you know, we're starting over with you and your wife who can't have kids, so she's perfect for this, because they're going to have a supernatural origin. And while we're doing all that, it's going to be through one of your seed that all of the other nations will be blessed, ultimately. So we have a situation in, at Babel emerge. This is where the other nations get their pantheons. This is where other nations get their gods. This is where idolatry, you know, starts. I mean, this is the Old Testament answer for that. And, you know, those, those entities are referred to as the gods, okay, the gods of the nations, the other Elohim. They just happen to be fallen or corrupt or evil. I mean, they, be, they become that. They're not that when, when God appoints them because, again, it makes little sense for God to say, hmm, I got an important job. Hey, you guys over there that already hate me, I have a really big job for you. You know, like, like that doesn't make any sense. So we're not told sort of when they turn or become adversarial. At the very least, they fail. And we know this from Psalm 82, because that's where they're getting excoriated in the Psalm 82 uh, Divine Council session. But we're, not, we're, not, we're only told what happens. We're not told when. But as we emerge, you know, into the time of Abraham, and Abraham's parent, you know, his, his dad is an idolater. So it doesn't take very long. Uh, we, we find that out from the end of the book of Joshua. We have a situation where it's Israel against the nations, Yahweh against these other gods. We do have demons, and we, we can talk about them, you know, a part of the, the interview here. And of course, we have the Lord of the Dead, you know, Satan, you know, the serpent figure. So we've got a whole cast of characters here. And none of them are called demons. <laughs> I mean, we, we have demon figures. Again, the demons of the Gospels have their roots in one of these rebellions, specifically the second one. And there are different reasons for that. Uh, but this is why you don't really see that term. Now, it, it, it becomes part of the discourse in the intertestamental period because we can blame Alexander the Great for this, okay? Uh, what happens is when the, when the world becomes Greek-speaking, this is the period when the Hebrew Bible gets translated into Greek, like everything else, okay? Because people speak Greek. And so the, the people who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, which is known as the Septuagint, I don't know if they were lazy. That, that sounds really harsh, <laughs> but some of them were. Uh, you lose a lot of the nuancing of the terminology in the Hebrew Bible, Um you know, there's, there's a whole variety of terms. And so what they do is they'll, they'll typically use daimon or daimonion, demon, to translate any of the members of the supernatural world that weren't good guys. They'll do it with idols. They'll do it with the fallen gods. I mean, sometimes they'll, they'll be very literal, like sons of God or, you know, angels, you know, the angels of God or something like that. But they use daimon a lot. And so that becomes kind of the vocabulary of choice in this period for the bad guys. The good guys are angels, the bad guys are demons, okay? And then that sort of gets drawn into the New Testament. Why? Because the New Testament's Greek. Now, Paul is different, though. 
Paul uses demons a few times, but a lot of his vocabulary is not demons. Hmm. A lot of his vocabulary for the powers of darkness is different. We get, you know, rulers, thrones, principalities, powers, dominions. I mean, we get all these terms that have one thing in common. They are geographical dominion terms. Why does Paul do that? Because he knows the Old Testament worldview that emerged from Babel, Deuteronomy 32.8, what I call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview in Unseen Realm. He also knows the theology of the book of Daniel. Where does Daniel get his theology with all these you know, prince of Persia, prince of Greece? You know, where, Daniel, where do you get this idea that, you know, powers of darkness are linked to geopolitical entities. Ah, that sounds suspiciously like Deuteronomy 32. I mean, in other words, there's a whole system of thought here that we largely just blow right by. And and I'll, I'll be blunt here. We just don't have taught to us. We have the fall taught to us. Since the fourth century AD, Christians have been taught to demythologize Genesis 6. There's nothing supernatural going on there. Citizen, move along. And we don't even get Deuteronomy 32.8. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm putting myself in this too. I, w- I was a PhD student in Hebrew Bible the first time I saw Deuteronomy 32.8. Why? Because they don't let you read English translations in, in grad school. They make you read things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. And so you're, you're confronted with, he divides up the nations according to the number of the sons of God when lots of English translations don't even read that because they don't use the Dead Sea Scrolls at Deuteronomy 32.8. So, you know, we, two of the three rebellions, we have little or no knowledge of either deliberately or we just, we never get there. Again, just, just it's, it's, a, it's a text and a translation problem. Now, all that's backdrop to your question about the New Testament. We don't have demons running around in the Hebrew Bible and we aren't using the Septuagint, so we don't see the term. Okay. So it looks like a mystery to us. But if we ask ourselves a, a simple question, th- I mean, this, I'm not saying this helps, but this makes the mystery even more profound. Why is it that when Jesus shows up and he starts casting out demons, people reflexively presume that, oh, well, this guy must be the Messiah. I mean, how do you get that? How, why would they have that expectation? You don't have a single casting out of anything in the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, starts doing this, and, and that's like a proof. How does that work? Well, it works because of the way intertestamental people thought about the Hebrew Bible, you know, specifically a few Psalms. Uh, Psalm 91 is a, is a big one here, and that's getting a lot of play because of the coronavirus thing. I think it's being quite misused because Psalm 91 in the days of Jesus was considered an exorcistic psalm. Wow. And interestingly enough, this is the one that Satan quotes in his confrontation with Jesus, which puts a whole other dimension on, on, on that episode. But we, we know this is true because among the Dead Sea Scrolls, Psalm 91 was preserved just just about in its entirety but it was bundled in cave 11 <clears throat> with four other psalms that are not in the hebrew bible but they were they're all exorcistic psalms they all have like exorcism language in them and so well why was psalm 91 like why did they look at that the same way it's because when you go through the psalm you have things like plague and affliction and you know pestilence and and, you know, warfare, that you have these terms that, that show up in Psalm 91, and four of them are terms that are used of Canaanite gods. 
okay, bad guys, bad supernatural bad guys. And at Qumran, this was considered a psalm of David. If you look in Psalm 91 in your English Bible, it doesn't say of David, but it does in the Septuagint. So whatever the Hebrew text happened to be that the Septuagint translator had, it was a psalm of David. And there are other texts at Qumran that talk about David and Solomon writing lots of psalms, and some of them were to cast out demons. Wow. And it had to have power over, over the powers of darkness. And so this is why when you get to the first century and Jesus shows up, they assume David, Solomon, son of David, Solomon, Davidic covenant, Messiah. I mean, you know, these are really simple thoughts. They're thinking, well, if this guy's really the son of David, he should be able to do this too. And he does. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that freaks people out. You know, that, that, <laughs> that is like, okay, we, we probably should start taking him seriously now. You know, when, when they see things like this happen. But, but we, as English readers, we don't have a superscription on a psalm. Our English translation obscures the fact that these are, these are named powers of darkness in their context. We don't have any of that. So, so we look at that, and we, don't, we just don't see the logic of it. But, but when you look at it the way they looked at it, it's like, it's, it's perfectly logical that they would draw this conclusion. Now, I think the, the whole reason why we see this in the Gospels is to show and to validate to Jewish readers, Jewish audiences who are going to read the Gospels, that this was the son of David. This was the guy. And, and I think that, that when, when Jesus is actually on the scene, this is, a, this is sort of an intentional part of, of the profile he's building um, and what he's doing. And not only that, but he's also inaugurating the kingdom of God. And so you're, you're naturally going to have this kind of conflict uh, between himself and these other powers. Does that mean that David was one of the few people actually, you know, exercising demons back then? Well, it, it means that there was, a, there was a strong tradition that these Psalms were written about David or by David that had these elements in them. So okay. you might be able to say yes to that. Um, it would depend on, on how you view the authorship of some of these things. Is it about him or is it by him? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but w- whether we can answer that question or not with any precision, you know, is, is unclear. What is clear is that this was a, this was a very obvious element to the messianic profile for people living at the time. If, if he had not been able to do this, they're like, well, just check him off the list. You know, that, that would have just invalidated the whole claim, because you're supposed to be able to do this. Okay. So, when you were mentioning the rebellions, you know, we all think of Satan, we, we think of the Nakash, we think of the mm-hmm. divine rebel in Eden. And you say there's there's different, there, there's multiple uh, characters in this, this cast. Now, is that the same entity that was in Job? The same Satan? Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't think that the the Satan, the Satan of Job, is the devil, and the reason for that is is grammatical. You know, we'll try to wake up your audience after this because mm-hmm. when you start talking about grammar, people tend to just drop off and take a snooze. Um, it's actually important in this case because Hebrew is like English in this respect, in several respects, but this is this is one of the clearer ones. Uh, English does not tolerate a definite article, the word the, 
before a proper personal name. Okay, I'm not the Mike. You're not the Drew. I, I always say the exception to this is Donald Trump. He gets to be the Donald. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember the old days when that's how he was referred to. Yeah. Uh, his his wife, I think, contemptuously referred to him as the Donald. <laughs> but other than him, uh, you know, this is not something you'd, you'd say in English. It sounds stupid. You know, it's, it's, it's not normal. And it's because this is just a feature of, of English. It's also a feature of Hebrew. You don't have the definite article in Hebrew. It's it's the, the letter ha. You don't have that before a proper personal noun. So if we have ha-satan, that tells the Hebrew reader that this is not a proper personal name. And that is what you have in Job 1 and 2 in every instance of the noun Satan. It's also what you have in Zechariah 3 in every instance that it's referred to there. So what it, what it would tell the, the Hebrew person is that this is a title. This is a job description. This is a role. This is some guy in the heavenly court that performs a function. He is, uh, you know, you, you can translate Satan a number of ways, you know, adversary, challenger, some people like prosecutor. It's actually tied up with, with what scholars call the, the heavenly book tradition. Now we're familiar with the book of life, like, you know, the scene in, with Moses, you know, don't, don't kill them, you know, blot me out of your book. And there's actually a number of books that are referred to in the Bible where, where God is kept abreast of things that are going on and what people are doing and what, what happens to people. And the, and the point is that it's not that, you know, God must have a bad memory, so he needs all this stuff written down. And he's like Einstein that would write his address down so he could find his way home. No, it, you know, that isn't the point at all. But the point that of the metaphor is that God doesn't miss anything. He has tasked his heavenly agents with keeping track of all these things and recording things so that in the final judgment, in the last day, we're going to have a record, aren't we? You know, that, that's the whole logic to it. So the, the prosecutor, if you remember back in the story of Job, God says, hey, where you been? And the, and the Satan says, I've been going to and fro throughout the whole earth, you know, and, and, and God expects him to kind of know what's going on because, hey, you know, have you looked at Job? You know, that guy's awesome. You know, this is, this is his job. He, 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 he runs around, you know, to see who's obedient to God and who's not and all this kind of stuff. So God, you know, he's doing his job. This is a guy who's just doing his job in the council, but he crosses a line. You know, when, when God says, hey, have you considered my blameless? You know, I just love this. <laughs> and says, yeah, I know who that is. But if you took away all he had, if you afflicted him, he would curse you to your face. Okay, that crosses a line in two respects. One, he has questioned God's omniscience in front of the heavenly host. And he has also questioned God's integrity. God either doesn't really know what Job is or who Job is, or he doesn't want you to know. Okay. Wow. So the, the whole scene that plays out in the book of Job is that God must vindicate his character. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the, ter- with the movie Time Bandits. This was kind no. of a cult movie that I, used to, I watched in high school about a dozen times, but it's a, the, all the characters are midgets. It's a British <laughs> comedy. It's it's worth it. Trust me. And and it, it's the the movie's about 
these these little little guys, these midgets, you know, they work for the creator. And then in the fabric of creation, there are holes in the universe. And so one of these guys gets the bright idea that, because you know, the creator has has the whole thing drawn out on a map, like so he knows where the holes are, you know. So one of the midgets gets the bright idea that like, if we steal the map, we can go back in time and rob these people blind and then just go like from hole to hole to hole. And, you know, nobody will ever know. So they steal the map. The creator is then pursuing him. But they're, the, there's somebody else who wants the map, and that is the evil one. So there's a Satan figure in the movie. And there's, there's this one scene where, of course, the, the Satan has a bunch of idiots, you know, working for him, where... <laughs> He goes on a rant about, you know, how superior he is and how powerful he is. And, and, and one of his, his henchmen looks at him and says, well, if that's the case, why haven't you been able to escape from this fortress? You know, the creator locked him up in a fortress. <laughs> and he goes, what did you say? He goes, why haven't you? And before he even gets it out, he, he, the guy just blows him up. The evil one blows <laughs> him to bits. And he goes, don't ever talk to me like that again. So I love that scene because, yeah, God could have done that to the Satan. He could have obliterated him right there. But you know what happens if he does? The question is still on the table. Wow, yeah. That doesn't take care of the question. So what God, you know... What, what God must decide because of the challenge is, okay, you do whatever you want to Job. Okay, you do whatever you, but you can't kill him because if you kill him, we'll never know that he would have endured anything. Right? You can do whatever you want except take his life and we'll see. We'll see if I'm correct about Job. And Job through the whole story suffers and this is the point of the story, that sometimes we suffer and we have no idea why. Job, Job hasn't seen this meeting in the first two chapters. The reader has. The reader knows what's going on. Job has no idea. So he's like, why am I suffering? You know, why? Because, you know, he, he had lived a blameless life. You know, he, he's, he's a righteous man. And so the whole story is about sometimes we suffer and we don't know why. But, but we just have to trust God. We have to trust God to you know, to know what he's doing. And, you know, the hope is that there'll be restoration, you know, we'll, we'll survive or whatever it is. And in the end of the book, of course, Job does. And he has, you know, he ends up with his losses restored, you know, umpteen fold or whatever it is. But he doesn't know any of the reason. Even at the end of the book, he doesn't know. He, he's never told about why. Um, but the whole book is about God demonstrating to everyone that can see all the members of the heavenly host who is correct and who is not. So, you know, in that instance, we have a member of the heavenly host. Yeah, he does cross a line, but he's not, you know, the, 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 the serpent of Genesis 3. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, we never have the term Satan ever applied to the villain of Genesis 3. And, and critical scholars, I should say not critical, but Scholars who have a generally low view of scripture, they love to point this out because what they want to do is they want to make you think that the Satanology of the New Testament is completely made up. It has has no attachment to the Old Testament. This is a brand new theology that they probably got from the Zoroastrians, you know, during the, you know, the exile and, you know, from the Persians, you know, they, they want to make it a contrived idea that is distinct from the Old Testament. They want to pit the Testaments against each other is what they want to do. 
And I don't buy that at all. I don't think there's anything about what the New Testament says about Satan where you don't have the data points for that idea in the Old Testament. I think we, we need to we need to understand what's happening between the Testaments and in the New Testament. You know, what what's there are a bunch of people, scholars, thinkers, you know, faithful Jews who 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 look at the Hebrew Bible as as the inspired word of God. And they're studying it. They're looking at all the data points there and they're trying to figure out how they connect. What does it all mean? How do these things go together? You know, they're they're trying to to come up with a theology of what this book says. This is what we do today. So it's, it's a very normal thing. So they will they will make attempts at this using the data points in the Hebrew Bible. So what you actually have, and then the New Testament will pick up some of these threads, and the New Testament writers will do the same thing, or they will find something in the intertestamental period that's useful, and that'll become part of what they're doing. In other words, they don't just throw out the scholarship of their predecessors. They read it. Is it helpful? You know, so what's happening is you have a systematized Satanology, in these later texts, built from the data points that's in the Hebrew Bible, they just weren't put together in the Hebrew Bible. The pieces are there, but they're not systematized. That's mm. really what's going on. We don't we don't need a New Testament writer to sit there and think, man, I'd like to say something about what happened in Eden. You know, can you hand me the Zoroastrian religion book? No, they're... they're they're looking, they're thinking at the Hebrew Bible and then, you know, again, how people who have the same view of the Hebrew Bible, that it's the word of God, how they were thinking about it. It's like, well, that's interesting. I could see that. I could see that. Eh, probably not. You know, I, I mean, there, it's the enterprise of thinking. It's the enterprise of trying to figure out what scripture says. That's, that's all it is. You know, it's not stealing from a a non-Hebrew source to fill in gaps and then come out with something that that would look totally foreign to somebody in the Hebrew Bible. What you have with Satan is, okay, he's not called Satan. The rebel of of Eden is not called Satan in in Genesis 3. Whoop-dee-doo. He's called lots of different things in the intertestamental period. Satan is one of them. He's called the liar He's called Belial or Beliar. It's spelled both ways, the worthless one. I mean, he's, he's called you know, a number of things. And guess what? Everything he's called fits. He deserves it. He is all those things. You know, so they're using words in one period to describe this rebel in Eden back in the Hebrew Bible. Is there like a cosmic rule against doing that? <laughs> no, there's not. I mean, they're... If the shoe fits, wear it. So they they actually come up with a way to talk about this being back in Eden who started the ruination of God's plan and the destruction of the human race. This is an enemy. This is a rebel. This is a cosmic rebel. And so we're going to label him every way, which way we can, you know, to to make this clear, you know, how, how this person, this entity should be viewed and one of those terms that eventually gets applied is Satan. Why? Because he's adversarial. He opposes God's people. 
He like he wants to to bring blame against them. He loves to look at them and 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 make them feel guilty or you know, you know, make them feel evil, make them believe that God hates them. You know, all these things that Satan gets accused of. You know, he's the accuser in the New Testament, walking about as a roaring lion. You know trying to make you either not believe the gospel or if you say you believe the gospel then you know maybe god really doesn't love me because look at how bad i am you know all these things this is what he does this is one of his roles and and all of the the rebellion figures you know with you know starting with the first one they all go through this sort of process where people in the intertestamental period are wondering okay like what's the relationship of the fallen sons of God. Like I know they're in the pit just, you know, that that's, that's where, that's where the original backstory that Genesis six, one through four, the Apkalu story, that's what it's responding to. So we, we got that part and all of the Jewish texts are consistent. The original offending sons of God are in the abyss until the end of days. Okay. But what about their offspring? You know, you know, why does Ezekiel and Isaiah have these have these Rephaim guys in the underworld, you know, in, in hell as it were? Okay, well, well, maybe that's where their spirits live. Like, and they come out and then they they try to seek embodiment. You, you see the beginnings of a demonology here that you see in the Gospels. We don't get it systematized in the Old Testament, but the data points for what you do see in the New Testament are there. In the intertestamental period, these guys, the, the spirits of the dead giant clans, what are they called? Bastard spirits is a favorite title among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Why would they call them that? That's a nasty term. Well, that's kind of what they are. <laughs> you know, if you really think about their origin, that's what they are. You know, another one is unclean spirits. And this one you actually see in the New Testament. You know, we think unclean spirit means that, oh, I don't want to touch that. And I got to wash my hands. Okay, if you understand what the concept of uncleanness is in the Old Testament, most of the things that are unclean, and some some scholars would say all. I don't know if I'm quite there yet, but definitely most of them are unclean because they are forbidden mixtures. Oh wow! They are things that don't go together. There's there's a whole in in the in the demons book. I you know I, I footnote a, a book by Clint Wallen. There's a whole book on this. It's a, it was his dissertation. Where does the term unclean spirits come from, and why is it used of you know demons? You know. This is what I try to do. I try to get, I try to ferret out primary source data and then draw on it and then make it decipherable for people who aren't going to go get degrees. You know, that it's, it's really not much more complicated than that. But, but unclean spirit, why are they unclean? Because they come from forbidden mixture. That's why they're unclean. You know, so, so you, you get this idea, but that, that's actually a nice illustration of how people thinking about this thing in the Hebrew Bible decide to characterize it and and how they see it's consistent with other things that that God either condemns or doesn't want to his people to be a part of that oppose what he wants to do that are there you know it, it's chaos language and I use the term chaos a lot and when I do what I mean is anti-eden everything that isn't the way it's supposed to be Okay, and, and, and if you think of it that way, there's there's a logic to how they're thinking about not only these entities, but things that happen and, you know, why someone would be ritually impure or something like that. There's a whole logic to the, to the system that, that kind of escapes us because we don't do ritual, you know, we don't do sacrifices. A lot of our churches don't even do liturgy. You know, we, we just, 
we, there's a huge disconnect here in the way uh, people thought in antiquity, even about worship and why they're doing certain things they're doing that, that is sort of lost on us. Um, again, it's not a sinister thing. It's just kind of the way it is. You know, we're, we're, we're different. Our culture's different. But all, all three groups, you know, the same thing for the, for the, the gods of the nations, you know. People in the second temple period are looking at all this stuff and thinking about it. How do we put it all together? And so what I wanted to do in this book, and I, and I can genuinely say this, you know, for when, when I talk about unseen realm, I, I love to say, because it's true, that Mike never had an original thought. That's the dirty little secret of unseen realm. Mike never had an original thought. That's a good thing because I want people to know that everything they will read in the book, this is why I load it full of footnotes. This is why the book has a companion website. I want you to know that it isn't just Mike. Okay. This is the result of, of scholarly efforts for a very, very long time by a whole lot of people. Demons is the same except for one thing. This is the only book that is written on this subject, both in academia and in, in, you know, a more popular audience. This is the only book on the powers of darkness that approaches the subject from the perspective of three rebellions. So if it has sort of a unique contribution, that would be it. Because I want people to see that. And I want people to see how how you get stuff in Hebrew Bible and then how they're thinking about it. And I do this for each of the three rebellions in the book. Here's what, here's what the Hebrew Bible says. Here's how they were thinking about it. And here's how the new Testament draws on all that stuff. You know, I, I do that three times, you know, through the book and then, you know, have, you know, like Q and a you know, in the chapters in the book and, you know, the topical issues. But I think it's really important because the convinces or a encouragers to think about the powers of darkness the way an ancient person would have been thinking about the topic. So I, th- I think it, it's helpful in that respect. All right. If you want the rest of the interview, there's a whole second half. If you want the rest of the interview, you got to go be a member at dailyrenegade.com. Go be a member today. It's only $10 a month or $100 a year. I suggest getting the $100 a year because you get two months for free that way. You only got to pay for it once and you don't have to think about it again for a whole other year. So that's a great deal. Uh, so for everybody viewing for free, thank you so much. Members, hang on the line. Everybody else, till next time, take care and God bless.